Oh, I'm just uh, decided to make sure I do as uh, as good a job as I can while we're here. And uh, but Sunday night is more in general study to give you a broad look, and that's what the Sunday night in general study is—a wide look at a book with an introduction, uh, and uh, you can move through it uh, faster. And then the in-depth studies are, are deeper, so you get like a river, broad and, and deep. And you get the benefit of it. And then, of course, our midweek study is an in-depth study. We take a smaller epistle, take maybe half a year, depending on the size, to a year. And so you can get different levels of teaching. You learn how to study the Word of God, how you approach it and everything, so that you can feed yourself. And you don't have to depend upon us, and you can learn from that. And so um, that's the reason for our three different methods that we do that. And so um, with that said, why don't we uh, turn to Luke chapter 12, please. Luke chapter 12, and we're beginning in verse 35, and we will finish the chapter tonight. Jesus has been speaking about the kingdom to the multitudes, and specifically to his disciples about temporal aspects of this life and the eternal nature of the coming one, as well as about God's faithfulness to provide and care for his people. Every generation has to deal with these issues about trusting God, about following and obeying Him, about living in this world but not of the world, and the conflict that goes on, and the sanctification while glorifying God and yet being relevant within this world without being a partaker of it so that we contradict what it is that we believe. And, uh, and God is sufficient for that to every generation. So we're not to be anxious over the normal things of life and at the same time uh, be compassionate and benevolent as he has showed us that towards others. Um, Certainly knowing that not everybody is sincere towards Christianity. Certainly knowing there are people always there to abuse Christianity or to manipulate people in Christianity. So we want to be benevolent, we want to be wise, and we want to be um, uh, open to what God has, but always checking things through the scriptures and using our good common sense. Luke has um, provided and provides for us many accounts and parables as we've seen, not found in uh, the other Gospels, and yet similar sayings and teachings we come across all the time that without any doubt were repeated over and over again by Jesus Christ at different occasions. Um particularly the middle portion of Luke here from chapter 5, verse 51, uh, all the way to chapter 1944. There is no real chronological order in the mind of Luke, as the other Gospels um, get bear witness, but he, he sets his order uh, thematically at times. Uh, and he's writing to Theophilus that he might have an accurate record of the ministry of Jesus in terms of all that... He did, and he used uh, interviews and and, uh, and and recorded records, and and he did a very critical job. And if you remember the introduction, so it wasn't just some you know general sloppy uh, investigation that he did. And so, when he comes to verse thirty-five. Um, He has dealt with the fact that where our treasure is, our heart will be there also. So, And we spoke a little bit more about that this morning in depth. If you weren't here on the the perspective on wealth and prosperity that Luke uh, teaches, very insightful. Um, All of us have to guard our heart against that. Um, Everybody can reject that as long as they have nothing. Is as you begin to move through life and you accumulate things and you become more um, able to uh, not struggle as much as your kids grow up or whatever, that then you have to, um, the test will come. What are you going to do? Are you going to live differently? Are you going to change your tune? And so time is the test of all things. And so when it comes to verse 35 now, um, he gives the parable of the doorkeeper here. Uh, and it's regarding his second coming. Uh, he says, let your waist be girded and your lands burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for the master. When he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, 
they may open to him immediately. So the servant of God is to be vigilant, always looking for the master. Here in verse 35 and 36, a similar parable is found in Mark 13, 33 to 37. And the idea behind having their waist girded here is talking about the men that used to wear long robes. And when they needed to run or to work, they would grab them from the bottom and pull them up and tuck them in their belt or their sash. A girdle, if you will, of the real thick belt. So this way they can move around and run. They can't trip and everything else. So it's talking about a person who is ready to move, ready to respond to the need. And again, here is the knock on the door um, as the Lord returns. Literally, having been, let them continue to be girded. So it's a vigilant servant, one who's watching. We're going to see the contrast of one who's sleeping. First uh, Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, from the loins down here to be able to move, the loins of your mind. You've got to gird them up because there's a lot of things that will distract you and try to attract you and to trip you up in the ways of God. If there was no chance, there would be no warning against it. You do not warn non-believers about this. They're already tripped up. They're already deceived. Remember? It's to the believer. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.13. Ephesians 6.14. Gird yourself with the word of truth to strengthen yourself as the, uh, for the spiritual warfare. And then you have the lampstand, lit in case it is by night. Verse 35. Having their wicks trimmed, plenty of oil to not run out, and their saucer type clay pottery. You've seen maybe pictures of them with a little oil in it, a little wick there. And it would give light. Now, the present passive durative here is in verse 35 about the lambs. Let the lambs be burning. Yours is emphatic. Each individual has to be vigilant. We are a church corporately, the body of Christ, but each individual is responsible to be vigilant, to be watching. Being ready day or night, like the five wise virgins, Opposed to the five foolish virgins in Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Now, all these parables here are talking about the second coming. The parable of the foolish and the wise virgins in Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Often, it is used to teach the rapture of the church. But if you examine the context, Matthew 24 and 25 is about the second coming also, not the rapture. The virgins there are responding to the return of the Lord to the earth. Examine it very closely. Okay? Now, certainly in principle, we should be like those virgins that are wise, watching, like these right here. But when the context is second coming... It has nothing to do with the rapture at all. Okay? So you want to examine and interpret what is being said about being a watcher regarding the context. Now, the continuous vigilance is to be motivated by the fact that their master could return any time from the wedding. In verse 36, notice, yourselves as emphatic. The key is expecting. You're expecting him to return. The anticipation was to respond to his knock on the door upon hearing that immediately. The stress is on immediately at once. If you're at home and you're waiting for somebody to knock on that front door, you're waiting, you're listening. And the minute they knock, you get up and you, you open. You don't just stroll up there if it's someone important. And that's the picture here. 
So in verse 37, he says, Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. So the blessing to the vigilant servant here in 37 and 38. In 37, those watching and waiting for Jesus in the second coming will be blessed. This is not the rapture. There are going to be many people saved after the church is removed. It's going to be one of the greatest uh, uh, revivals. The 144,000 will be witnessing. The two witnesses will be witnessing for the Lord. Um, the two prophets. Um, uh, they will be killed by the Antichrist. They will lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. Um, they're going to be just a pain to the Antichrist. Multitudes are going to turn to the Lord. You have the remnant of Israel going on. That's the grace of God. But Jesus warned that it would be better to die than to live in those days. Now, if, if you cannot live for Jesus Christ during the age of grace now, and in the United States, don't fool yourself thinking you're going to be able to live for Christ during the tribulation period. There's no way. This is the beatitude, like the Sermon on the Mount, the word blessed. Markarios simply means to be happy due to the benefit and the privilege that's given here. Jesus will gird himself and have them sit down and eat and serve them himself. Jesus washed the feet of the apostles, remember in John 13, verse 4 through 5. In fact, in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven, later he says, For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table, yet I am among you as one who serves. So Jesus is the ultimate example of servant leadership. There is no other type of leadership in the Bible but servant leadership. And the warning is always against those servants who become lords over the people of God. In the latter days, the kingdom parables, the church grows abnormally large, and you have big birds in the church, lodging, buzzards, evil men. The church is not going to get better. It's going to get bigger, which makes it worse, not better. <laughs> it's simple. Study Matthew 13, the kingdom parables. Now notice the day and time is unknown. Verse 38, the authority is supreme. Jesus says, I say to you. Jesus precedes it with the word assuredly. It's the word amen. When the word amen is put at the beginning of the sentence, it means truly, verily, pay attention. What I'm going to tell you is not only important, it is very reliable. When it's put at the end of the sentence, it's the word translated amen. So be it. I confirm what I just said is true. Okay? 75 times it's found in Matthew. 13 in Mark. 6 in Luke. 25 in John. Now, notice that he says there in verse 38 about the second and the third watch. In other words, no one knows. There were four watches according to the Roman time. The Jews had a three watch. The Roman watch, the second watch was 9 a.m. to 12 a.m. Or 9 p.m., I'm sorry, to 12 a.m. And then the third was from 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. And the first watch, of course, was 6 to 9 p.m., and the fourth watch was 3 a.m. to 6 p.m. So you just started from 6 to 9, 9 to 12, 12 to 3, 3 to 6. It would make it four watches. Um, whether he's using Roman time or Jewish time, you have different people, uh, different opinions. Um, 
but I give you both. Now, Romans 8.23 says, We eagerly are waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. That's speaking of the rapture in Romans 8.23. Philippians 3.20 and 21 speaks about our vile bodies being transformed, changed. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 says, We will be caught up harpazo in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We will be caught up with the dead bodies that will be joined with the ones who have preceded us. Okay? But there's a seven-year distinction and difference between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture happens here, which also begins the day of the Lord. You have three and a half years called the tribulation. The Antichrist appears on a horse, a white horse, a bow, no errors. He conquers through diplomacy. When they say peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them. The abomination of desolation takes place right in the middle, Matthew 14, 24, 15. Flee to the wilderness. Israel realizes that he enters the temple, declares himself God, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. She flees to the wilderness. She goes to Petra. This last half is called Great Tribulation. Nobody will be allowed to do anything without the Antichrist. He alone is worshipped. Every man will receive a mark on the hand or the forehead. And God will take care of Israel in the wilderness. Romans 12 for three and a half years. We believe it's the city of Petra. At the end, when he returns, he will gather his remnant. And we will return with him. So there are seven years between the rapture and the second coming. Very clearly taught in months, days, and years. So we cannot miss it. Very clear. Now, in 39 down to 40, we have the parable of the sleeping householder. Again, it goes, he's reinforcing everything he's teaching here about the second coming. Um, he says, But know this that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched. And not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so the warning to be a vigilant servant for Jesus will come as a thief in the night. It's an illustration here of the danger of being indifferent or careless in watching by the thief breaking into a house due to the master's lack of vigilance in verse 39. If someone warns you that there's been some house break-ins in your neighborhood and you do not take precautions, then you deserve to be broken into. <laughs> Simple. You're hoping they don't break into your house, but you make preparations to protect yourself and your family. Simple. This is the picture. The day of the Lord is also described as a thief in the night, which begins again the tribulation period, as I told you. The rapture happens simultaneously at the same time. Um, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Second Peter 3.9. Intend that day of the Lord will come. It is a day of gloom. The day of the Lord speaks not, on, not just of a one-time event, but the day of the Lord begins when the rapture takes place, but it goes all the way to the millennial. So a lot of events are in the day of the Lord. The rapture, the appearance of the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, Israel fleeing to the wilderness, the persecution, the second coming, the judgment of the nations, the kingdom age. That all encompasses the day of the Lord. And if you were with us in our study of the millennial, you'll remember that. Okay? So it's not just a one-time event. Now, it's a day of gloom. It's a, a term that is found throughout the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. It's not a day you're looking forward to. It's a day of judgment. A day of gloom, doom, judgment. Amos the prophet says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Amos 5, 18 and 19. Now if you've ever studied and read the book of Amos, Amos is a uh, prophet of God and called to go prophesy to the northern kingdom, you know, where idolatry is and he, he cries out against them and they get all mad at him. You know, I go prophesy somewhere else. They say, listen, I didn't, you know, I was a, 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 a seed picker, a sheep breeder. God called me. And he calls 
on Israel, the northern kingdom, to repent for all their evil. The women were one of the leading evil of the day. Read Amos chapter 4, chapter 5. He calls them cows of Basham. (laughs) And so, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ as a church. Romans 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, also verse 2 through 4. And the very hour that we will be saved from in Revelation 3.10. So very clearly, God has promised that he will remove us. Stop being afraid. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many abiding places or mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Here's the key. That I may come back and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. When he comes for us in the rapture, he receives us to himself to go before the beam of seat of Christ and get rewarded and go through the marriage supper. When he comes back, we come back with him for judgment. You must make that distinction. Otherwise, you're going to put the church in the tribulation. The only woman in Revelation chapter 6 down to 19 is pregnant. Don't insult God. (laughs) Okay? And that's Israel. She gives birth to the the Messiah. And he's taken to heaven. Alright? There is no church during that time. Except for the church of Laodicea, which becomes the church of the Antichrist. And we see that being put together today. As we see so much of the emerging church compromising Saying that there's no objective truth we can learn from the word of God. Redefining Christianity. Redefining a Christian. Saying that Christians can drink. And Christians should be out there with sinners like Jesus. And and influencing them and being like them. No, 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 no. When you're born again, you come out from among them. You live in the world, but not of the world. You're a light. You're not part of darkness. You don't live the way you used to. If you do, either you're not born again... Or you're going back to the world. You can tell me which one it is. One or the other. And so you be real careful today. They will mark you as legalistic, as self-righteous, as, as sanctimonious. Because you believe that there is a transformation that's been going on. And that you're to live a sanctified life. Okay? So the emergent church is the lukewarm church. It's part of it. Not the only of it. It's ecumenical. Let's just get along. Let's just love one another. Let's not fight about doctrine. No, let's fight about doctrine. It's very important that we have doctrine. Having no doctrine is like driving a car without a steering wheel. Or without brakes. How many of you want to do that? It's crazy. And so the personal and direct exhortation to the... To be ready for the coming of the Son of Man when they least expect it in verse 40. Live constantly ready is what he's saying. The Son of Man, the title for the God-Man, the incarnate Christ. 33 times in Matthew, 14 in Mark, 26 in Luke, 12 in John. A total of 85 times in the Gospels. The Son of Man. It's also used for Daniel in Ezekiel, indicating the humanity of both of those men. And for Christ, the God who became man. Now, in verse 41, down to 48, we have the parable of the faithful and evil servant. Parallel passage you can find in Matthew 24, uh, 45 on down. Um, and... Um, Here in 41, it says, Then Peter um, said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise servant whom his master will make ruler over his household and to give them their portion of food in due season? 
So here Peter interrupts. Peter's always asking some good questions. He always sticks his hand up. And um, he's hearing this parable and he's thinking, because remember, in the backdrop is the crowds. We've pointed out in this chapter and the previous one that he's speaking directly to his apostles and disciples many times and it's indicated. But the crowd is still in the backdrop. And so here he interrupts and asks about this previous parable that has been declared. The answer is directly related to 35 to 40. Jesus affirms, notice in 42, that it was to his disciples. The ones who can be faithful and wise stewards. Only believers have that potential. Now, they also have the potential to be unfaithful. We're going to see this. The believer has a potential to be faithful and unfaithful. The unbeliever has only a potential to be unfaithful. Because he's not born again. Okay? Very, very, very clear. In 42, he speaks about being a steward. Oikonomos, a householder manager, responsible for multiplying the master's goods. But he owns nothing. It's required that a servant be found faithful, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.1. The one whom Jesus will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season, he says. Those entrusted over the flock of God. Those entrusted with gifts and callings. That's every believer. We all serve. We're all different part of the body of Christ. We all fit in. And if God has saved you, then he also has a call for your life. And he also has endowed you with gifts and enablements for the things that he wants you to do. In 43, Jesus says, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. So he pronounces a blessing, the beatitude here, on finding a servant being vigilant. Luke 19, 13 later, we'll read, do business till I come. The old King James says, occupy till I come. Preaching the gospel, teaching the saints, overseeing the house of God, being faithful to walk with God, being a faithful husband, being a faithful father, being a diligent witness. All the things that are very practical and that God has enabled us to be. When he comes or returns, that's what he wants to find. And notice Jesus confirms in full authority, truly I say to you, he will make him ruler over all that he has. There will be rewards there will be loss of rewards. We understand this at the Bema Seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 14 and 15. The motive of the heart will be the standard for judgment, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. In verse 45 to 48, you have the unfaithful servant now dealt with. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and the female servants and to eat and to drink and be drunk. The master of the servant will come in a day when he's not looking for him at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Now, the evil servant is not watching He's not vigilant in verse 45. He is convinced his master is delaying in his coming. In other words, he feels comfortable enough that it's not going to be right now. In fact, not in the near future. So he presumes upon that 
that then he can do and act and comport himself in an evil way. In his heart, the seed of his intellect, emotion and will, depicting his evil character by choice. He begins to abuse his authority over God's people, beating males and females. Very clearly you know that Jesus is referring to the religious rulers of the day, the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, the Sadducees. Very clearly he's warning about the future of the second coming, so he must be speaking about church leaders and those in authority. Certainly the principle will apply to every believer, but he's talking about people in authority, servants. He becomes indulgent with food, drink, and drunkenness. One of the most nonsensical explanations of the new definition of Christianity of the emergent church is that the Bible does not teach Christians should not drink. And that the days of Jesus, Jesus drank wine. There's only one type of wine. Yes. But the culture of that day when they drank, they diluted the wine. Not to dilute the wine, but to purify the water. And the amount of wine to the portion of water, you could drink 10, 20 glasses, you would never get drunk. So it wasn't for getting a buzz. It was to purify the water. They're very dishonest. But let me ask you a more practical question. I'm sure you weren't different than I was. When I drank in the world, I didn't drink because I was thirsty. Okay? I drank because I wanted to get a buzz and I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Simple. Why would I as a Christian want to drink now? Why would I want to give anybody the idea that I can act like the world and do what I used to do? And what would make me think that the consequences that happened to my life because of drinking in the world are not going to happen to me as a Christian? It is ridiculous, ladies and gentlemen. This is not legalism. You are a fool if you drink. 150% like old Bacardi. <laughs> I still remember. Johnny Walker Red, Peppermint Schnapps, Smirnoff. When I was working at Prana Market, a six-pack of Coors glass is 137. A case is 525. I don't even know what it goes for. Probably about 25, 30 bucks now. <laughs> Cigarettes used to be 37 cents when I worked at the store. Now they're probably five bucks a pack. So just from an economic level, why would you want to drink? You're taking that money away from your children. From your wife. Why would you want to add the hurt of alcohol and your stupidity that goes on under the label of Christianity? You got to be crazy. I grew up in the world. I didn't grow up in the church. But you've got a weird message today from pulpits. It's absolutely very, very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. The Pharisees, scribes, and lawyers who had taken away the key of knowledge are here indicated and implied. They had taken God's word from the people in Luke eleven fifty two. This is what a lot of emergent people are doing. They're taking away the word of God, the key of knowledge from people. And they're saying, oh, it's okay, you can do this. Oh, it's okay, it's good. You know, and they're twisting the word of God. You're responsible for your salvation. You're responsible for what you believe. 
Jesus says, take heed what you hear and how you hear. Are you checking me out when I'm teaching the word of God verse by verse? If you're not checking me out, you're a candidate for deception. You must check everyone out. This applies to every pastor, elder, leader, servant in the church. The warning is very, very severe. Notice also in 46, the master returns unexpectedly. One day when he is not looking. The master of the servant will come in a day when he is not looking for him. And in an hour when he is not aware. And will cut him in two and appoint him a portion with the unbeliever. This is an incredible verse. When he's not looking in the hour, he's not aware. And the reference to cut him in two means to kill him. With the sword. Simple. He's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about the second coming. He's talking about eternal life. Not just temporal life. What does it say? Cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. That means the one that is cut in two is not an unbeliever. Simple. You don't need Greek. <laughs> you don't need anything else. It's a contrast. Okay? He knew his master's will. He says, My Lord delays his coming. He began to abuse his position, and the Lord comes. And he appoints that evil servant with the unbeliever. Now, if you're a Calvinist, I don't know what you're going to do with that. I'm sure you'll try to spin it, but it's hard to do. <laughs> Very hard to do. The degree of punishments to the servant who knew his master's will is now in 47. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. To those that much is given, much required, right? Only a believer can know his master's will. A non-believer can't know his master's will. It's very clear here. The judgment is according to the measure of light received. Different degrees of punishment are clear. Different degrees of reward in heaven. Different degrees of punishment in hell. Ultimately the lake of fire. God is not going to judge someone who's a liar and give a verdict on the same level as one who's a murderer. God is just. God is holy. God is perfect in his judgment. In 48, the degree of contrast is again indicated for the one who did not know. But he who did not know, this is the unbeliever. So you've got three people, the faithful, the evil, and now the evil servant is contrasted to the one who didn't know his master's will, which is the unbeliever. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of strifes, shall be beaten with few. Why? For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him they will ask the more simple principle you're a parent your child is one year old you've been teaching them not to touch certain things at one year old they touch something and it breaks you take them and you give them a little smack like that just to let them know Nothing hard, not child abuse the way everything's going in our news. But if he is 12 years old and he's playing in the house 
And he knows for 12 years that he's not supposed to do that. And he breaks one of your family heirlooms. Trust me, you are not just going to go, pip. Okay? You're going to deal with him much more severe. Because to those who much is given, much more is required. Let's give God a break. Let's not insult God, ladies and gentlemen. Okay? In 49 down to 53, you have now the mission of Jesus at his first coming. He says, I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distress I am till it is accomplished verse 49 and 50 you have the propitiation for the sins of the world declared here in 49 Jesus declared he came to send fire on the earth the symbol of fire is a, in this context indicates judgment the judgment is on the earth for having rejected Jesus as Messiah and Savior and putting them to death Jesus wished it were already kindled, he says there in 46. His desire that it be accomplished is in view of the benefit to those who believe the Father's judgment fell on him in their stead for the forgiveness of sins of salvation. Since chapter, uh, since the confession of Peter at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus has been walking towards Jerusalem under the shadow of the cross six months. He's going to be crucified. They think he's going to reign. <laughs> he's told them clearly, they don't hear it. His desire is that it be accomplished is also in view that no one is without excuse when they reject him. So the judgment that's going to fall upon him is at the cross, the wrath of the Father. As he becomes the Lamb of God, the sins for the world. And it's the way by which men and women are able to repent of their sins and be born again. In 50, Jesus confirmed he was speaking of his death and resurrection. The statement but I have a baptism to be baptized with refers to his suffering and his death. You remember in Mark ten thirty eight, when uh, James and John asked Jesus for the right hand and the left hand. And, um, and Matthew says they sent their mommy also to kind of give a good word in. Jesus said there to James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and the baptism that I'm to be baptized with? He was headed to Jerusalem for his death. That's what he's talking about. But they didn't understand him. The statement and how distressed I am till it be accomplished indicates his full and complete humanness. The word distress means to be pressured together on every side. It's used of a ship that comes into a narrow gorge. When you get adrenaline pump, it's because your arteries constrict. When you have high blood pressure, it's because your arteries constrict. They narrow. Your pressure goes up. This is the idea. Though he was God, he was fully man, tempted in every way as you are, yet without sin. He was committed to the cross, he was committed to die. But he went through everything that you and I would go through. Therefore, he is a faithful high priest able to secure us in every way that we go through. He's faithful. The idea again is constriction, narrowing. Indicating the tremendous pressure. In fact, Luke is going to tell us that when he gets to the garden, he, 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 his drops of blood came forth from his forehead from the pressure of the capillaries bursting. Pretty heavy. Now, 
In 51 to 53, we have the separation of believers and non-believers. He says, do you suppose that I came to give peace to the earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. So Jesus knew his disciples thought he was going to Jerusalem, as we said, to set up the kingdom, but he wasn't. They had the wrong theology. Do you suppose I came to give peace to the earth? No. In fact, in chapter 19, verse 11, he says, Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought, they as the disciples, they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. You remember the first question they asked Jesus after the resurrection, the book of Acts, within those 40 days that he was with them? Will you at this time restore the kingdom? It's none of your business. <laughs> they, were, they were ready to rule. <laughs> I tell you, not at all, but rather division. I mean disunion and dissension. Matthew says a sword. Matthew 10.34 and in fact, Matthew in 10, 36-38 says, And a man's enemies will be those of his household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You would think that Jesus was anti-family. If you study the scriptures, if you don't look, put them in their context. Jesus is saying that he is number one in your life. He is to be worshipped and loved and obeyed above anybody else. And if it comes to obeying Jesus and your parents, you obey Jesus. If it comes to following your wife or husband or Jesus, you follow Jesus. Because that's the only way you can really love your parents or your wife or your husband. You cannot give what you do not have. It's real simple. So Jesus declares families would be torn apart from because of believing in him in verse 52. He stated it would start from his first coming. For from now on, he says, he indicated it would disrupt their family peace. The house would be divided. Three against two, two against three. This is an example of a small Jewish home. The family, a husband and a wife is two. A single daughter is three. A married husband or son, which brings his wife into the home, that's five. <laughs> okay? Because sons would bring their wives into the father's home. When the daughter gets married, she would go into the house of her husband's father. So that's what he's talking about, five, right here. Simon told Mary, if you remember, in Luke 2.34, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Jesus divides. Either you're for him or you're against him. You cannot follow Jesus if you're going to be loyal to men and women who do not walk and agree with Jesus. You may have to live with some of them as a husband or a wife or family members. You don't hate them for that. But you can't bow down to their standards. You cannot follow their dictates that contradict the word of God. It's real simple. Okay? And it's very difficult at times. One of the hardest things I ever had to do at first was tell my dad he couldn't drink in my house. Pretty hard. But you know what? He honored it. And God honored it. And my dad came to know the Lord. So we have to choose who we're going to love, who we're going to serve, who we're going to obey. Now notice, in 53, Jesus describes the emotional turmoil of families by believing in him. He says, Father will be divided. 
against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So Jesus divides home. And often Jesus has to divide homes before he can unite them. Sometimes the husband is born again, the wife is not. And sometimes that non-believer says, I want to be with you, Jesus freak, and I'm going to divorce you. And they divorce him. And then God saves them and they get remarried again. I've seen that happen. I've seen father and son, mother and daughter, whatever. And then they come to be born again and the family is really united now. And then I've also seen families and homes that stay united. I mean, stay divided because some of them don't want to follow Jesus. In fact, if you were an ex-Catholic, your parents, your family told you, oh, you changed your religion. Because that's all they know, religion. They have no clue about relationship with Jesus Christ. In 54 to 59, you have the invitation of Jesus to believe in Him. Follow the whole train of thought that's been going on about the second coming, okay? 54 to 57, the rebuke for willful ignorance of the prophetic times. Then he also said to the multitude, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, it's talking about the Mediterranean Sea, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And so it is. And so Jesus declared that it's easy to tell the weather in Israel. It doesn't take any real brilliancy. It can only come from the west if this is the case. Okay? Showers. And then he says, and when you see the south wind blow from the southern Arabian desert, a Shirako, you say, there will be hot weather. And there is. In other words, it's so easy to tell the weather. It's so obvious. And then he hits them with a two by four. <laughs> Hypocrites, actors. You can discern the face of the sky, of the earth. But now, is it you do not discern this time? This time has the article. Time is kairos, the word that is used for a specific time, like summer, a certain week, or a birthday. The time was his first coming. They had the scriptures. You can be wrong even in the weather as easy as it is to discern. But the scriptures, you have them. You have no excuse for not discerning the scriptures. He nails them. Yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? In other words, individually, you are responsible for the scriptures instead of going along with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or other people's opinions. You can't say, well, he told me, well, my pastor. No, 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 you, you Christian. You have a Bible? You have a brain? You have a Holy Spirit? You're busted. Wow. In 58, he says, when you go with your adversary, and now he switches from the weather now to going to court, okay? This is a mini parable that he gives. When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. So, the adversary here is Jesus. They're at odds with him. He's Messiah. They should have known that. There's a time for them to get right and repent and turn before they die. 
If you don't get right with me, then you've, your death puts you on a different sphere. There is no second opportunity. And now the only thing you have to look forward to is to go to the judge. And you're guilty. It's not a second opportunity. You're not innocent. So every person has time while they're alive to agree who Jesus is and to repent from their sins. And we get right through Jesus with the Father. So simple. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very, very last might. Well, so many people are so sure that there is nothing after death. This is the only life. So many people are so sure that Jesus is not the Son of God, not the Messiah, the Savior of the world, but just a good man, a prophet. When men and women die with that understanding and that conviction, they die separated eternally from God. Death is separation from God. Physical death is the separation of your spirit from your body. But it's eternal separation. There is no second opportunity. And so Jesus just lays it out on them. He divides homes. People have to make a choice. Death separates man from God for all eternity. Only through Jesus Christ can you get right. Only He can forgive you of your sins. Only He can make you whiter than snow. Only He can give you a new mind. Only He can present you before the Father blameless. (laughs) Nobody else. We are without excuse from creation, conscience, history, and the New Testament. Especially as Americans. Our entire constitution is based on the Christian Judeo principle of God. The God of the Bible. As much as our educators and politicians want to deny it, they would have to destroy every monument in Washington, D.C. And that may be coming. But they'll have to do that. And they'll have to do away with our Constitution completely as a document. They've already ignored it. All they have to do is repeal it now. Eternity is a serious matter, ladies and gentlemen. It's all based on what you believe about Jesus Christ. Either He is the Son of God who died for your sins or He's the greatest liar in the world. One of the two. It can't be both. One will save you, the other one will damn you. But it is your choice. You have all the right to go to hell. But you don't have to go there. You can't choose to go to heaven. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Thank you for tonight. And thank you for your grace over our life, Lord. How privileged and how blessed we are to walk with you, to know you. To have your word, Lord, your Holy Spirit. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. I I can't convince you to be a Christian. I would never attempt that. I trust in the preaching of the word of God that the Holy Spirit is dealing with your heart. And if your heart is open... Then God will convict you of your sin. And he will turn on the light to allow you to see and understand that Jesus is God who died for you, the Savior of the world. And God will be just to give you an opportunity to respond to his initiation. It's called repentance. No one can repent for you. You must repent for yourself. Acknowledging that you're a sinner and that God's wrath is upon you. 
And that if you trust what Jesus did for you on the cross, that you can call upon him, he will save you. He will make you whiter than snow and he will give to eternal life. That's the offer of the Lord to you as well as the Father. So maybe you're over the internet, right where you sit, you can say this prayer and he's going to forgive you. He's going to give you eternal life. Or if you're sitting here, this is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.